This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. I'm excited today to have Bruce Friedrich on the podcast. I met Bruce a number of years ago. It was not long after I went to The Washington Post. And I was writing at that time a column about food policy. And Bruce was director of campaigns at PETA and he reached out to me to have lunch. And we had this fantastic lunch. And, and it was really interesting for me because I had never really spoken and, or spent much time with someone deeply involved in the animal rights movement. The lunch I had with him and, and conversations that we've had subsequently have been a very, very big influence on me and on how I eat and how I think about eating. Bruce is a very, very smart and ethical guy on these issues. It will at times, I'm going to warn people, be a little bit of a hard conversation potentially for carnivores, but I think it is it is worth listening to, even if these are not priors you share. And and uh, I hope it'll feel like a, at the very least a fair conversation. But he's thought about these issues really deeply. He's very, not just considered, but evidence-based around how he eats and how he thinks about eating. In more recent years, he's become the head of the Good Food Institute and really interestingly, the founding partner of New Crop Capital, which is a venture fund that is trying to increase animal welfare by investing in alternatives to farmed animals. We talk in this a lot about his path, about what got him into these issues, about what kinds of foods and, and animals he considers ethical to eat and under which circumstances. Something we talk a lot about that I'm frankly thinking a lot about now after our discussion is the ways in which vegetarianism may actually not be optimal from an animal welfare point of view, even if, even if you're not going vegan. He talks a lot about the difference between eating chickens and even eating eggs and eating cows and, and, and what that means for how many animals actually have to suffer. I'm thinking of making some major changes to the way I eat based on that part of our conversation. So I hope you enjoy this. I, as always, really appreciate the time he spent with me. And I think it is a conversation that certainly I got a lot out of and, and I hope you will too. As always, if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it on Facebook, on Twitter, rate it on iTunes, tell people you like it, tell them they might like it too. I'm very, very grateful for when you do that. And when you have guest ideas for me, please email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. 
Also, if you're enjoying this podcast, you, I think, will probably enjoy the other podcast I'm part of, The Weeds, which is also on Panoply. You can search it by just searching The Weeds wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Um, in The Weeds, my colleagues, Matthew Iglesias and Sarah Cliff, who are, are genuinely two of the smartest people I've ever met, and it is scary to be in a conversation with them each week, we sit down and we talk through some of the deeper policy issues in, in, in American politics, things like carbon taxes and healthcare policy, anything we can find that feels important but undercovered is, is fair game. So if you're enjoying this podcast, I think you'll enjoy that one too. And I really do urge you to go find it, download it, check it out. Um, tell me what you think of it. And with that, without further ado, here is Bruce Friedrich. Bruce, hello. Ezra, Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. It has been a long time since we've last sat down in the same room together. It has I think been. When we talked, we went to Suki Asia, a place of, of fond memories for me. And you were working at PETA then as director of campaigns, yeah? That's right. I actually think it's a good thing to start there. How did you get involved with PETA? Well, I came to Washington, D.C. in 1990. And I ran a homeless shelter under the Catholic worker umbrella, as well as a soup kitchen for six years. So you're like a terrible person who doesn't care about others. Yeah, that's basically it. That, <laughs> that, that sums it up. And I was doing that for six years. And when I decided that I was interested in transitioning to something else, a really close friend of mine is also really close friends with Ingrid Newkirk, the president and founder of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And she thought that Ingrid and I would really hit it off. We both have very type A personalities and are both pretty irreverent and unoffendable. So uh, she put us together and I was offered the job same day when I went in and, and chatted with Ingrid and I worked at PETA for 13 years. So this is what year that you come to PETA? 1996. And 1996, I don't think I would be able to pinpoint this precisely, but PETA in this period, to some degree still, but in this period has a very confrontational not just approach reputation, right? This is a period when they're sort of throwing buckets of fake blood on, on models wearing fur. They're having naked women sort of in small cages to advertise the, the horrors of battery cages. How much of that were you involved in? What did you think of that? Paint that picture a little bit for me. What was PETA like during this period? Well, PETA was and is. The goal of PETA is to generate the conversation. The goal has not been and is not to win popularity contests. So PETA considers it a success if lots and lots of people are thinking about animal protection issues for whatever reason. It's not quite a any press is good press mentality, but it's certainly a most press is good press mentality. And there's also a sense that if people are saying, oh my God, I can't believe PETA did X, but they're not actually contesting that PETA is right. Like it's not two sides of the animal rights issue. It's PETA raises the animal rights issue and people go, well, maybe, but why did you have to raise it that way? That's really a victory because the one side in the animal rights debate that is represented is the animal rights side. So PETA does a, a phenomenal job of getting millions and millions and millions of dollars in fee free publicity far outstripping its budget. So one of the sort of guiding philosophies is McDonald's spends a billion dollars a year on advertising. That's 
PETA's annual budget is somewhere on the area of $40 million. So they do what is required to try to get people thinking about these issues. And as a director of campaigns, was this your job? Was it planning these attention-raising, awareness-raising efforts? Yeah, I was vice president of campaigns for about a decade. So that means I, I oversaw the stuff that got PETA the, the brick brats. What is your favorite campaign that you oversaw? I really liked the campaigns that were focused on drawing attention between the similarities of human beings and other animals. So all of the campaigns that involved putting naked people in saran wrap with a tagline like, think about who it is that you're eating, anything that caused people to walk by and think about the similarity between human beings and other animals, I thought was a good way of raising attention for these issues. So so walk me through how a campaign like that comes together. Who is the person who had the idea that we should saran wrap some naked human beings and put them out in public? It's a little like Grover Norquist's weekly meetings. So there, there is a weekly meeting at which everybody in campaigns and a lot of other people sit around a table and bat around ideas. And most ideas get rejected, but some ideas get accepted and implemented if they generate press attention to a significant degree and get people thinking about the issues and talking about the issues and visiting PETA's website in order to watch all of the videos that PETA is putting together. Those ideas generally get implemented. I should say that the, the vast majority of PETA's budget is not in campaigns. So PETA has a community animal project, which gives away free dog houses. They go into areas of the country where people are treating their animals abysmally and offer free spay neuter and other veterinary services for poor people. PETA does a tremendous amount on animal experimentation issues. PETA works with corporations to try to reduce the number of animals who are used in various painful ways. So the, the organization does a lot that you would expect a nonprofit animal protection organization to do. But PETA also sees itself as the voice of animals and to break through the sort of cacophony that is the media landscape today, it oftentimes requires tactics that a lot of people find, you know, maybe over the top. And now were you a abstracted overseer supervisor character or were you occasionally being saran wrapped? I wasn't saran wrapped, but I, I did participate in an awful lot of the demonstrations. What, what, is, what is one thing that you participated in that you remember particularly vividly? We did a lot of demonstrations that were focused on KFC, which, you know, as, as I think you know, chickens raised for food now grow six to seven times as quickly as they would naturally. So they're suffering from massive death losses and they're in horrible pain throughout their entire lives. And actually, there was just something in the Wall Street Journal, you know, at the end of March, so a couple of weeks ago, talking about how quickly chickens are growing now, and it's causing the flesh of the animals to be unpalatable to consumers. Oh, the horror. There were University of of Arkansas poultry scientists who said that if a human baby grew as quickly as a modern broiler chicken, she would weigh more than 600 pounds by the time she was six months old. Wow. So, you know, think about that. A human that, baby... That is one of the most horrifying things I've ever heard. Yeah. I mean, their, their upper bodies are growing so quickly, but their hearts and their lungs and their limbs can't keep up. So this so, is something someone said to me recently that I'm curious, you, you know this space a million times better than I do, but said that even when you're thinking about humane meat, right, or what's called humane meat, I'm not sure if, if you believe there's such a thing, but even if you have chickens that are not in cages, chickens that have access to the outside, that 
the way we have bred them, the kinds of chickens that are being bred means that even if the conditions are not as bad, you're still probably dealing with an animal that due to the modifications we've made to its fundamental biology, its growth, its proportion of body parts is going to be in, in terrible, terrible pain its whole life. Yeah, the animals are bred to suffer. Poultry scientists uniformly say that this is the worst aspect of what we're doing with farm animals. So, I mean, these animals, their hearts and their lungs and their limbs can't keep up with their massive upper bodies, and they are cooped in their own excrement for their entire lives. So there are better and worse in the sort of humane certification. So like the American Humane Association certified is total greenwashing. It's basically putting a happy stamp onto abuses that would just shock the conscience of anybody who actually saw what happened. At the other end of the, the spectrum, Animal Welfare Approved, which is a project of the Animal Welfare Institute, slaughters still can be pretty egregious and most people don't want to see or think about it, but it is what you would expect animal welfare to be if you visit an animal welfare approved farm. And then the objection, maybe you have an objection to eating animals because you just don't want to support violence unnecessarily, but the treatment is different. And the problem comes because one of them is called animal welfare approved and that's legitimate. And one of them is called American Humane Association certified. And that is just grossly a lie. And consumers, you know, they go and they need to try to remember these things. But as you said, absolutely, with the Animal Humane Association certified and most of the certifications, you're still talking about the same genetic strain of animal. So even if the animals on farms are not being as gratuitously abused, they do have genetics that just cause them to be in chronic pain throughout their lives. So I, I had interrupted your story, which is one of my most common interviewing techniques, but you were telling me about a KFC protest. Right. So we, we did things. We would go to KFCs with massive blow-up signs that said KFC closed for cruelty or KFC boils animals alive. Another one of the really remarkable things about how the USDA enforces what laws do exist. There's one law that covers farm animals. It's called the Humane Slaughter Act. So farm animals are exempted from the Animal Welfare Act, but there is a Humane Slaughter Act. But so far, USDA has exempted birds in its interpretation of the act. And birds are more than 98.5% of slaughtered land animals. So we slaughter 100 times as many chickens as pigs. We slaughter 250 times as many chickens as cattle. And as we just discussed, their life on the farm is excruciating. And then at the slaughterhouse, because they're not covered by the single federal law that's supposed to protect farm animals, the way they are slaughtered is also, I mean, it would be illegal under the Humane Slaughter Act. It would be a federal crime. And yet, because they're exempted, they are routinely just boiled alive, as Kimberly Kindy from the Washington Post reported, you know, I think about 18 months ago when she did a really nice front page expose on this issue. So we show up in front of KFCs with really large undercover investigation signs, and we put somebody in a chicken costume on crutches crossing the road in front of the KFC, drawing attention to the fact that their chickens are crippled and that then at slaughter that they are boiled alive. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 
So let, let's jump back in time here a little bit. How you came to Washington and first you were working with human beings. You were running a homeless shelter. Right. I assume at that point you were already vegetarian, vegan. I went vegan in 1987 after I read Diet for a Small Planet. And, and, that's, and that's what I was going to ask you. When did you get interested in, in animal welfare? Did you grow up in a household that was interested in it? Did you read Peter Singer in college or high school? What was the trigger for you? Yeah, so I went vegan in 1987 for environmental and global poverty reasons after I read Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore LePay. In 1990, I came to Washington, D.C. and was running the homeless shelter in the soup kitchen. And I was vegan for, again, you know, reasons of sustainability and, and opposition to global hunger. A few years after I came to D.C., I read a book called Christianity and the Rights of Animals by an Anglican theologian named Andrew Lindsay. He's a professor of religion at Oxford University. And he just makes the very basic point. He puts it in a faith-based context, but it's really, I think, about the nature of integrity. And I mean, it's a book-length presentation of this concept, but the concept is pretty simple. Should we be, if we have a choice, making choices that are kind or cruel, that support mercy or misery? And then he posits that for people of faith, but really just people of integrity, that we shouldn't be entering into this mercenary relationship wherein we're paying other people to do things that we find morally objectionable. And that really resonated with me. And then he goes on and points out other animals are made of flesh and blood and bone, just like we are. They have the same five physiological senses that we do. Biologically, their pain response is the same as our pain response. They may not uh, psychologically rationalize it in the same way, but some people argue that that makes it even worse for them. You know, Temple Grandin has famously argued that pain for an animal, in her opinion, dominates their thought in the moment that it's happening to them and that they might actually experience it as an even more egregious thing than we experience it. So sort of all of those arguments, and then he sort of has a liberation theology for animals. And in fact, his subsequent book, that sort of Christianity and the rights of animals takes it to, to sort of a deeper theological level is called animal theology. And he does basically say, this is the least of these and what we're doing to them mocks God to treat them so abysmally and to grow them to be these sort of Frankenstein animals. Do you practice within a faith tradition? I'm Catholic. You are. And, and that seems to be how you came both to the shelter you worked at, but also to some of the your, your animal welfare work. Do you, do you come out of a social justice tradition within there? Yes. So when I was in college, I was organizing fasts for Oxfam International and volunteering at a Catholic worker shelter in Des Moines, Iowa. I was active with a group called Latin American Support Organization. So we were looking at stuff that was happening that the U.S. government was doing in the 1980s in Central and South America. And so when I read Diet for a Small Planet and realized just the vast inefficiency of growing crops to feed them to animals so that we could eat animals. The, mo the most efficient you know, species is chickens, and it takes nine calories into a chicken. According to the World Resources Institute, it takes nine calories in soy or wheat or alfalfa or whatever you're feeding the chicken. It takes nine calories in to get one calorie out. So a lot of people are very upset, and rightly so, about food waste. 40% of everything that's produced is thrown away. But each time we choose to eat animal products, it's as though you're throwing away 90% of the food that's grown. You're not personally doing it, but those crops still have to be grown to be fed to the chicken or the pig or the other animal. And the vast majority of that is just completely wasted. So none of us would take nine plates of pasta and throw them in the trash and eat one plate of pasta 
But again, that's the economic relationship that we enter very directly into when we're consuming animal products. So that's the diet for a small planet in 90 seconds. And it was very convincing. It's a very good synopsis. Thank you. You mentioned a second ago, it's the second time this has come up on this show that you organize fasts, social justice fasts in college. Tell me a little bit about that. Why fasting? What, What did you think was effective about that? What was that experience like for you? I find fasting to be... We are people of privilege, you and I, and probably most people listening to this podcast. So for me, there's something, I mean, and and being at the Catholic Worker for six years was sort of similar, living, you know, this is the early 1990s in Washington, D.C. There was a crack house less than two blocks away from us. People, families of people who were intentional community didn't want to come there. And fasting and that, the Catholic Worker concept of living in voluntary poverty, So fasting and that was an attempt to begin to understand how an awful lot of people are living who are not privileged. And even underprivileged in the United States has nothing on underprivileged in Eritrea or sub-Saharan Africa. You know, as Oxfam International told us to do it. So I'm putting a lot more thought into it now than I actually had to then. Oxfam International said, organize your campus once a semester, sign everybody up to fast for a day, work with your dining hall to not serve that food, and then to give whatever they're saving to Oxfam International to alleviate global mm-hmm. poverty. So that was the concept. And we did that each semester when I, I was when I was at Cornell College. Have you continued fasting either for personal or political reasons after college? Very rarely. I did after college. I did for a bunch of years, but I I haven't done it recently. Got it. I want to talk through some of the questions around meat eating that I've had over the years that I think many people in the audience would have. So so you and I have, have chatted over the years. I think when we spoke, when we were in person last, I was doing some weird sort of like three meat meals a month thing. Now I'm a vegetarian. My wife is a vegan, so I'm much more familiar with that lifestyle too. But something that I definitely struggle with is that it is not obvious to me that in a world where you could certify humane meat, that where you could have cows that were raised well on pasture, et cetera, and, and, and be certain about that and recognizing that's often not the world we're in, that it is more ethical to not have those cows exist at all, that they are better off at the total in a very utilitarian way, that the total quantity of happiness in the world is higher if those cows never exist. I'm curious how you think about that objection, because I'm sure you've heard it many times. Yeah, I mean, I think about it in two parts. Part one is that an awful lot of thoughtful, progressive, kind people use that concept as a rationalization for continuing to eat animals now. So oftentimes people who continue to eat factory farmed animals want to talk about herders in Africa, or they want to talk about the Inuit, or they want to talk about some hypothetical world where all of the animals are treated really, really well and are slaughtered painlessly. And that's a that's a hypothetical that I'm happy to engage in, but I think it's worth recognizing that we couldn't be any further away from that. And that even the best certification programs allow practices with farm animals out of the necessity of raising farm animals for food 
that would be felony level illegal in all 50 states. So you know, 99% of farm animal production. You mean if just, done to humans? Uh, if done to dogs or cats. Sorry. In, sorry, dogs or cats. Yeah. Yeah. To protected animals. Right. So yeah. No, thank you for connecting those dots. But yes. So even the best humane certifiers, those animals are treated in a way that most people would not want to engage in or support. So that's sort of point one. Before we move on to point two, I want to ask one version then, one move in that argument that you often hear. So one thing people say is, look, it's not realistic that people will give up meat. And what you want to do is, is increase animal welfare to the extent that you can by going to Glenn's Market, right, which is a, a local market that carries a lot of local products, including some meat, and creating demand for this more expensive, better treated meat that you are beginning to create an alternative that in some ways is more effective and more scalable than simple exit. That's a, a Michael Pollan argument for sure. And I think he's the person who I've heard articulate it most often and vigorously. But I think the argument for removing oneself from that equation altogether, that space is certainly a lot bigger than the so-called humane meat space at the moment. And sort of a, a side argument to that is when you're you know, dining with friends, he has actually suggested that it's easier to be in favor of humane meat than it is to not consume meat at all, which strikes me as just objectively untrue. If you go to a dinner and you eat a plant-based diet, that's a lot easier to explain and discuss than to say the meat you are serving is unethical. But if it had been this other meat, then I would have been willing to consume it. Right. So, I have no problem telling someone I'm coming over near to ham a vegetarian. The idea of calling them and saying, hey, listen, make what you want, but just you've got to be super careful on the sourcing strikes me as... I don't think we have normalized that socially yet. Right. And I think that is a very similar argument to the idea, where do you want to participate in the economy? Do you want to participate in the economy such that you are creating a market for plant-based alternatives? Or do you want to do the sort of half measure? And even in your scenario, recognizing that it's a half measure for what you see as a greater good of making that segment of the economy more robust. I understand that as an argument. It doesn't ring true for me. It seems to me that creating the market for the plant-based alternatives, especially if you recognize that that is in better line with your personal ethics, it just makes a lot more sense. And that actually is a segue into part two. And that is, while I recognize that somebody can, with perfect integrity and honesty, be a subsistence hunter, which is in sort of the same category as buying exclusively from your farmer's market where you know the farmer and you've seen the slaughter and you think that it's just fine by you, or animal welfare approved as being sort of one step down from that, it seems to me that we should at least have the intellectual integrity to do a thought experiment wherein you say, what if that was a dog or a cat? Because for most people, they would recoil at the idea of eating a dog or a cat. And yet I don't think anybody can come up with anything approximating a tenable. I'm not a huge fan of cats, to be honest. Well, but you, prob <laughs> you, you probably wouldn't eat them. I'm guessing. You, you know, I, I will say because I think this is a really interesting part of the argument. So I have two dogs. I have two terriers. And I definitely do not want to eat them. That's true. But this argument is the one that I've never quite understood. Because and, and I, I think I can make a version of it, but but let me let me try this for you for a second. 
It is not obvious to me that the implication of this argument is that eating meat is wrong so much as humans are irrational, which is if eating meat is not wrong, then eating dogs, eating cats, I don't really understand. And, and I think it's possible I've written about this in the past, but I don't understand the furor you see about other cultures where they consume dogs from people who eat other kinds of meat. I don't even pretend to understand that a little bit. But I'm not sure what that implies is that all meat is bad so much as creating strange protected classes doesn't make a ton of sense. It may be that you love dogs or you don't want to do it. I mean, we all have things that we do and things that we don't do. But that doesn't strike me as quite the, the knockdown uh, argument that it's often portrayed as, I think. Well, it could certainly go in either direction. And it certainly speaks to the cognitive dissonance in people that you could make that argument in different cultures in different ways. Right. But I, I do think that for the vast majority of people who do get incensed by the idea of, of eating a dog or a cat, saying to them, that speaks well of you, that you don't want to take life unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. But think about what that implies or what that means when you're talking about chickens or pigs or fish or other animals. Because if you're right, and most people are, are pretty dead set on being right about not eating dogs and cats, then how do you explain your willingness to cause much greater pain and suffering to a chicken or a pig or a fish or any other animal? I think that thought experiment for most people, a lot of people will say, well, if I were on a desert island, I'd eat a dog. Well, yeah, but you're not on a desert island. <laughs> and so really think about that. And then a side argument to that is the one of, of basic integrity. Like if you would not personally engage in all of the practices that are required to bring even so-called humane meat to the dinner table, don't enter into that mercenary relationship wherein you're paying other people to do those things for you. So, something we've glossed over a little bit here. Let's talk about what you just said, so-called humane meat for a minute, because I, I think this is important and I'm not sure it's something even I understand that well. So for instance, I think of myself as pretty read into this debate, not incredibly so, but but more than most people. And I am still very confused by the different humane association, animal welfare group, like the, all these different certifications. So let's take one of the stronger ones and walk through for me what you see in there as the, the unconscionable practices. And which is the most common humane designation? It's the, Amer it's the humane association one. Yeah. It's, I feel it's like I see that common. on eggs all the time. Right. It's the most common because it's the lowest standard. Okay. And so tell me what is allowed in that one. Because I think that's the one that, that me and, and many folks in the audience will see in their supermarket. Well, one thing that's allowed in the... So this is the American Humane Association certified standard. And who is that association? The American Humane Association. They mostly do dog and cat stuff and they do child stuff. They're most famous for the, at the end of the movies, saying the American Humane Association was on site and certifies that no animals were harmed in the making of this movie. And there have been some really powerful exposés in the Los Angeles Times about the degree to which that is just fundamentally not true. There have also been, if anybody wants to see what American Humane Association certified looks like, you can go online and there have been multiple undercover investigations by Mercy for Animals, I think PETA and other direct action everywhere. Other organizations have actually gone into these farms and it is about the farthest thing you can imagine from humane, which is why fairly recently Mercy for Animals filed a legal complaint against Foster Farms, I think, and Purdue, I think, and definitely AHA for deceiving consumers with the use of this label. But probably the most stark thing that it allows that people are pretty shocked by is it allows caging hens. So 
You've got Walmart and McDonald's and Costco and all of these huge producers saying, we are going to get hens out of cages. We recognize that our consumers don't want it. We recognize in many cases that it is just horrible animal welfare to cram hens into these cages where they basically can't move for their entire lives. The American Humane Association has been on the front lines defending bigger cages where the animals still can't do anything that's natural to them and they spend their entire lives just barely able to move. And all that happens, I just want to be super clear, you will buy eggs. I've bought eggs. They say American Humane Association on them, like humane certified. And the animal that produced those eggs was in a cage where it basically could not move. And it was a genetic strain of that animal that was bred for producing tremendous amounts of eggs and so is not has not evolved to just live a comfortable life anyway. No, that's that's exactly right. And because it is a genetic strain of, you know, they're all females, obviously, because only right. females lay, lay eggs. Well, um, so for every... Well, for now. <laughs> right. We've, we've done a lot of interesting things with chickens. <laughs> it's true. For every chicken who's laying eggs, there's also a male chicken who, because the breed of animal that lays eggs is different from the breed of animals that are used to produce meat that was thrown alive into either a grinder or a plastic bag, which is a pretty awful way to go. It's basically, you know, tossing the male babies into garbage disposals. So this brings me to, to something else on, on the other side of this debate. I mentioned, so I've been vegetarian for about a year. And Congratulations. With, with, thank you. With a, couple, with a couple of failures here and there, but, but more or less um, pretty good. So I felt good when I did that. Felt pretty smug. Felt pretty ethical. Then my wife went vegan. So now I feel like a monster all the time. <laughs> and something that, that talking to her has made me think about a lot is the way that vegetarianism has been defined against what you might do if you were concerned about animal welfare. And, and specifically, something that, that she has sensitized me to is the degree to which particularly egg laying is one of the cruelest parts of the animal meat creation complex, whatever you want to call it. And that this world in which eating beef you know, where you actually to some degree can get pasture raised beef. And even so, if like you got all your protein from a cow for a year, you would kill half a cow versus... A tenth of a cow, yeah. Uh, sorry? A tenth of a cow. Oh, well. Um, so I have that wrong. Then on the other hand, under the rules of vegetarianism, you know, the sort of quote unquote rules, it's totally fine to eat all the eggs you want. And as you say, male chickens are getting ground up. The more I've started to understand that, that's made how we think about this sort of intermediate step, right? Because obviously there's veganism and, and, and different levels of that, and, and that gets to pretty pure levels. But for, for people who take that 60% or 70% of the way there, it seems like we may have ended up in a weird place accidentally. Yeah, I'm, no, I, I think that's right. You oftentimes hear from people who say they've given up red meat, which from an animal protection standpoint is exactly the opposite of the way that everybody in the animal rights movement would want people to proceed. There's actually a new organization called uh, One Step, and they encourage people to stop eating chickens and fish and eggs because that's the vast majority of the cruelty battle. And yeah, cattle are treated abysmally. Third degree burns without pain relief, the shipping to slaughter, the slaughter. There's a lot that's objectionable about the cattle industry. But if everybody ate exactly the same amount of meat, but they only ate beef, that's more than 98 out of every 100 animals who are consumed. Wait, that is a crazy statistic right there. Say, say that again. If everybody moved all of their meat consumption to beef, 
yeah, 98% of the animals would be saved because it takes you 10 years to eat a cow, but you sit down and you have two chicken wings, you're just off to chicken. So for people who want to go stair step into the idea of eating fewer animals and causing less cruelty, really giving up chickens and fish and eggs, those are the three absolute worst. And then cattle, again, it's, it's you know, I don't want to make light of, of what cattle go through, but you can eat a, an awful lot of burgers before you've offed a cow. The cut on the other side of this is that from an environmental standpoint, cattle are the worst. Yeah, or near to it. That is probably true. There are certainly some agricultural researchers who suggest that that's not true, especially if your primary concern is climate change, that once you include things like respiration and all of the extra stages of production, that it really becomes a per weight issue. So this was this is a concept famously advanced by a World Bank economist named Robert Goodland and an IFC, International Finance Corporation, agricultural economist named Jeff Anang, and they published a paper in through World Watch that looked at climate change and contends that more than half of all climate change, once you figure everything in, is attributable to farm animals. And their suggestion is that from a climate change standpoint, it's really just a, a volume issue. So it doesn't matter which animal? That's their argument. That's the minority view. But their argument is that if you eat a pound of chicken, that causes about the same climate change as a pound can, of beef. Can you explain? I don't think I understand why this. So my understanding of this had to do with, first, how much... Do you have to feed that animal to make a pound of their flesh, right? And you have to just feed cattle more. You raise them for longer. They're not, as you said, we've made chickens. It's such a horrifying word in this context, very efficient. And then that the other part had to do with just emissions. And I mean, people sort of laugh when you talk about cow burps and so forth, but, but that there's something methane is a very, very powerful greenhouse gas. And that had a big, big impact. So what is their move in that? So there, there are a couple of moves. One of them is nitrous oxide, which is even more powerful than methane and apparently chickens in terms of how much you feed them and how much manure they put out and how much nitrous oxide is created is even worse. And then the other is, is respiration. And this is controversial, although, I mean, World Watch continues to stand by the paper. And obviously these two agricultural scientists continue to stand by the paper. And just like you and I sitting here talking are breathing and creating carbon dioxide as a result of that, they argue that what whether it's a chicken or a pig or a cow or, you know, any animal breathing is going to create carbon dioxide and that that was not included, for example, in the United Nations Livestock's Long Shadow report. That may or may not be true. The thing that I tend to focus on is that even the mainstream agricultural economists say that as just one example, so going back to chicken is most efficient, it still causes about 54 grams of CO2 equivalent for every calorie of chicken, whereas legumes like soy are two grams. So you're literally talking about when you choose to eat soy or other legumes, you're causing 27 times less CO2 equivalent, 27 times less climate change. And if you do that calculation looking at a calorie of protein, which many people are most concerned about, it becomes 40 times worse. So the most efficient meat causes 27 times more climate change per calorie, 40 times more climate change per protein calorie. Then for beef, it's I think like 330 times, which accentuates your point. But really, it's all pretty bad. And something that you said that I thought was in interesting, or at least worth pulling out for a minute, was you brought up fish here. And like with chicken, when people will easily kill a fish in a night for dinner. I went to a Peruvian restaurant the other day that just opened up in town. 
and they, they didn't have much vegetarian food on the menu. And I was asking about it. He said, yeah, we're going to put more vegetarian food on the menu, probably shellfish. <laughs> and I, I thought that was very funny, actually. You hear that occasionally at... When I go get Chinese food in the suburbs, sometimes I'll say I'm vegetarian and they'll say, OK, great, but you eat fish. But that is a part of this that I feel is more intuitive for people. For a while, I was also I was pescatarian. And what is it that Singer calls it is, is speciesism, right? That we, we can sort of see ourselves more in even a chicken than we can in a salmon. But I'm curious how that stacks up against some of these other classes of, of livestock. Well, I mean, it, it's tough to know in some instances because there are so many different species of fish. USDA measures fish in tonnage, not in individuals. So we don't have clear government analysis of even numbers of animals. But there have been multiple agricultural scientists who have attempted to figure out numbers. And it looks like it's even more fish than land animals. So the average... And is that including bycatch? That is not including bycatch. Because that's a... When I read about that, so bycatch is the idea that oftentimes 90% of the animals that a fishing trawler catches will not be the one that they're taking to market. It'll basically just be thrown back overboard, right? Yeah, like they oftentimes grind them, they grind them up and you can actually see some of these uh, like on Nova and other places. You can actually see if you actually there's a video called What Came Before, which people can see at whatcamebefore.com. And you can see the sort of blood spewing off one of these factory fish trawlers. But um, I mean, environmentally, this is one area where environmental groups actually do sort of dive in and discuss the issue. People are horrified by both aquaculture and commercial fishing, oftentimes more horrified by commercial fishing, which I think, again, is sort of the opposite of the way people should express concern. One other thing to say on the climate change issue, though, is the foremost think tank in Europe is the International Royal, it's called Chatham House, is the, the shorthand for it. And about a year and a half ago, they released a report in which they decried the degree to which both governments and nonprofits are not talking about livestock as a key concern for solving the climate change issue. And they said that it will be literally impossible for governments to meet their obligations under the Paris Agreement unless they cut down on animal product consumption. And their solution, which I think is right, is to get people to consume fewer animal products rather than focusing sort of product by product. So it's stuff I know you've mm -hmm. talked about, you know, things like Meatless Mondays or Vegan Before Six. So getting people to cut back across the board rather, well, rather than sort of picking and choosing their both, animals. Both sides of this seem correct to me. So I've, I've looked a lot at the, the climate change implications of this and it's very, very, very big and something that we very much don't like to talk about. And yet what has always seemed so odd to me about that reticence is that we are very comfortable or comfortable may not be exactly the right word, but, but it has been normalized to shame people for driving sports utility vehicles or big trucks. Sure. But if you live in a rural area and you do work that actually requires you hauling things back and forth, having a big car or you have a big family and you have a commute to work, having a big car actually may not be an easy choice. And certainly if you already have that car, changing it out is very, very difficult. It is much easier to eat pasta two nights a week. And so there's some sense in which both in terms of what would have the biggest impact, but also in terms of what kinds of changes can people realistically make as opposed to what kinds of changes act as a signaling of affluence. I've always thought there's something very 
unsatisfying about the reasons you hear for why we focus on one and not the other. There, there's become something where it is great to buy a Prius or even better yet a Tesla. And that makes you actually look really cool. But, but that's a sign of affluence. Like what you've done is bought a kind of luxury product to show what a good person you are. As opposed to it's totally off the table to say, hey, it'd be great if people ate – there used to be something called the – there might still be for all I know – the peanut butter and jelly project, which is just like why don't you have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches a couple times a week for lunch as opposed to something with meat. And I really like peanut butter and jelly. And it's a change people can make without having to invest thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 or substantially change their lifestyle. The reasons people give for this always seem very unsatisfying to me. It always seems that it's kind of masking the ways in which sometimes what we think of or, or what are framed as, as environmental concerns are really a set of lifestyle signaling choices. That, and that's the part we're really invested in. Yeah, no, I think it's, I, I agree with you. I, I completely resonate with the idea that it is perplexing that environmental groups will tell people to drive a different car or walk more or, I mean, all kinds of things that actually require expense and time and are difficult and are challenging. And yet they won't say, well, I mean, environmental defense did famously say that if everybody replaced one meal of chicken per week with vegetarian foods instead, it would be the equivalent of taking half a million cars off U.S. roads. But good luck finding that even on their website, even though they've made the point. You have to look pretty hard and you still wouldn't find in Earth in the Balance or an Inconvenient Truth, you wouldn't find any mention of this issue. And yet it's not controversial at all. Like there's complete unanimity among scientists who study climate change that shifting away from animal product consumption is absolutely essential. And yet, you know, neither the nonprofits nor governments that are addressing these issues are really w willing to go there. And that, that was one of the key points that Chatham House was addressing in their report, you know, sort of challenging the preconceived notion of governments and nonprofits that they don't want to intrude on dinner tables and that people will just be too resistant. And their argument is, you know, we don't know. We haven't tried. Maybe it would work. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. It seems to me that one conclusion you have come to is that while it's good work to try to get people to stop eating meat, it's going to be ultimately more effective to make it so meat stops being environmentally unsustainable and cruel, that you may not be able to win the battle for hearts and minds, but you may be able to win the battle for plates. So do you want to talk a little bit about your investment fund? Uh, sure. So the investment fund is called New Crop Capital. 
And it has basically the same thesis as the nonprofit, which is the Good Food Institute. And in both cases, it's a recognition that if you ask people, why do you make the food choices that you make? And there are sociologists who study this and there have been gazillions of studies done. And every single one, pretty much everybody takes into account taste and price. And everybody takes into account even not if intentionally convenience, like the three things that determine what people are going to eat are taste, price and convenience. And so what we've seen in, in recent years is the amount of meat that people eat is going down. So people are consuming more and more plant-based foods, but without that much of an uptake in complete vegetarianism or complete veganism. And so the thesis of both the VC firm and the nonprofit is that people who care about climate change and global poverty and the health effects of animal product consumption and the animal welfare effects, that we should be doing what we can to help people make decisions that align with their values in these four areas, even if they're not in a situation in which they're even thinking about their values in these four areas. If we create plant-based and cultured alternatives that taste as good that are cheaper and that are equally convenient, people will switch over and we can sort of even remove the ethical decision from the discussion with consumers. And, and there are places where this seems very obvious to me. So one thing that I thought was very funny was about three years ago now, there was a dispute about Taco Bell and some group came out and they said the beef in Taco Bell tacos was not all beef. I forget the exact number, but there was like 29% beef or something. And Taco Bell fired back furiously. They said, no, the beef is 88% beef. And nobody's view anywhere was that the beef was 100% beef. Like that was not even one of the options on the table, including from the Taco Bell side. And with things like that, with things like Taco Bell or a McDonald's hamburger, I mean, there, there are places where I think it's going to be tremendously difficult to create an alternative to a steak. Right. If you are going to a steakhouse and getting like a big, thick steak, I don't think we're going to be able to grow that very effectively for a very long time. But there are a lot of things where what you're doing is creating some kind of texture and bit of charbroiled flavor and whatever. And it doesn't actually matter all that much what's in there. So I had David Chang on the show recently and he was saying to me, unless I'm somehow misremembering the story, but he was saying to me that he's very excited about Superiority Burger in New York, which is a very fancy pastry chef, opened up a small burger place and it's all vegetarian burgers, but they just taste really good. And I think you could do that with things like burgers because so much of the flavor is coming from other things. The meat is part of it. The core is part of it, but it's a much smaller part of it. And, and if you particularly go to a place like McDonald's, it's a very small part of it. And it has seemed such a small jump to get to a place where, even given how good some of these alternatives are now, where you could replace that without anyone really caring. It actually always seems to me that the problem there is conceptual. The, the argument there wasn't that Taco Bell, even if it was only offering 29% beef, it tasted any worse, right? It tasted like whatever a Taco Bell beef taco tasted like. But people were conceptually upset by the idea that that beef was not real beef. And so it seems that the real problem there for much of that stuff is not going to be, and you can tell me if I'm wrong here, is not actually technological. It's conceptual. It's that people prefer the idea that they're eating meat to the idea that they're not or that they're eating some fake meat. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that probably does have to do with the fact that plant-based meats 
were not very good up until fairly recently. And so an awful lot of people tried them a decade ago, and they're not willing to jump in again. Yeah, 1993 uh, Tofurky was not an amazing product. It's pretty good now, though. It's not bad now. I agree. But, but um, yeah, changed. I mean, it's uh, so there, there's a concept in venture capital, minimum viable product. And I think minimum viable product probably is a good idea if you're selling you know, an iPhone app. But you bring in the minimum viable product in the, the food space, and it's people's first impression, and it's awfully difficult to share that first impression. But there are some really phenomenal plant-based products that are coming online and even more coming online momentarily. So for example, a biochemist from Stanford University named Pat Brown formed a company called Impossible Foods, and they have gotten about $200 million in venture capital so far, including from the richest person in Asia, Li Ka-shing. And by the end of the year, they're going to have a burger that they're saying is going to be completely indistinguishable from a meat burger. So we'll be testing your hypothesis by the end of the year, whether, you know, whether people will, especially as the price comes down with economies of scale, whether people will shift over. But I think part of the problem so far is that we're far from having come near meeting the demand that exists. So you have companies like Gardein and Beyond Meat and Boca and other companies, and you add all of them up and they're still one quarter of 1% of the meat market. So... The CEO of Pinnacle Foods recently bought Gardein for $154 million, and he said he thinks that plant-based meats are poised to do what plant-based milks started doing about a decade ago. And in terms of market share, that means... So by plant-based milks, just because I'm not sure, basically, you're talking soy milk, almond milk. Right. So, soy milk and almond milk, which continue a huge upward trajectory. So as just one example, almond milk today is, is selling at 250% what it was selling at three years ago, even as milk from cows is going down year by year. So this is a huge upward trajectory that plant-based meats, veggie burgers, veggie nuggets, those sorts of things, they're about to hit this trajectory as well. And in dollar terms, that's $16 billion a year that they're currently not selling. I think that as people try them and as they get better and as they reach economies of scale and become less expensive, there's going to be a huge shift in the direction of plant-based meats as an alternative to animal-based meats. And my hope is that a part of that will be you know, the environmental groups and the global poverty groups and the health groups and governments that are concerned about climate change and huge science foundations that are concerned about climate change and sustainability and global poverty and human health that will see a lot more R&D in this area and a lot more promotion of these products side by side with the animal products, because I think we are going to see a lot of people shift over just like they did with, with almond milk and soy milk. And the vast majority of people who are consuming almond milk and soy milk are also consuming cow's milk. And that's fine. I mean, it's the people who, you know, it's not ethical objections. It's that the stuff is price competitive, it's convenient, and it's tasty. And so people are shifting over. I think we're going to see that with, with, I think we're on the cusp of a plant-based meat revolution as well. So, so you you would know the market research here better than I do. What is considered to be the reason these plant-based milks took off? Because you just said they're convenient, they're price competitive, and they're tasty. 
and I basically disagree on all on all counts, but they're definitely not that price competitive. I mean, almond milk is is quite expensive compared to particularly cheap milk, and you know, soy milk is a bit price competitive. It's closer certainly, and it's shelf stable, which makes it in some ways more convenient, at least before you open it. But it has a very different taste from milk. So, given that these things are not just selling to vegetarians, who are they selling to and why? Well, I mean, according to the market research, they're selling to sort of everybody, which is what I think needs to happen with plant-based meat as well. We need to create a sector like plant-based milks created a sector. So when somebody is going into the grocery store and they're doing their weekly shopping, they now see plant-based milks as something that they are going to buy. We need to create that for plant-based meat. And I think we're, we're on the cusp of doing that. And I will just say as an aside that almond milk and soy milk and other you know, plant-based milks, they are coming down in price. And it's also critical that they're right there alongside the other milks so that they're in people's consciousness. And that's something that's, that's about to be happening more and more with plant-based meats as well. One thing that I wonder about as a bit of an on-ramp here, and, and the milks I think speak to this well, because you're, you're talking about plant-based meats. And as someone who eats a lot of plant-based meats and made tofurkey sausages last night for dinner... It certainly seems to me, atmospherically, and and this is based on on very little, that people who want chicken nuggets still think they want chicken nuggets, right? They're getting folks over that hump. If they're not trying to eat less meat is is very difficult. But then you have a bunch of things where it seems that the the meat really is incidental. People are not trying to eat meat. They're trying to do something different. Mayonnaise, I think, is a really good example of this. So we use in our house Beyond Mayo, which is, as far as I can tell, and I'm somebody who likes mayonnaise, it is indistinguishable from mayo, from, from Hellman's mayo, but it doesn't have eggs in it. Right. As a very quick aside, can you clear up a mystery of vegan food for me? Why does everything have pea protein? What is it about pea protein that has become such a savior of, of vegan alternatives to meat-based foods? So gluten has gotten a bit of a bad rap among a lot of people. Soy has occasionally gotten a bit of a bad rap. Pea protein is relatively inexpensive. It's high in protein and it's an excellent replacement for all of the areas where you would otherwise be using animal protein. So Bill Gates invested in Beyond Meat and actually wrote a blog in which he said, you know, what I was tasting was not just a clever meat substitute. It was the future of food. And he's talking about the environmental consequences and the global poverty consequences of cycling so many crops through animals rather than eating those crops directly. And Beyond Meat is famously one of the companies that has managed to go gluten-free and soy-free with its crumbles and its Beast Burger and a lot of these other products because they're using people protein. Some of the soy and gluten-based products are also, I think, really phenomenal. But for Just Mayo, which uh, is also invested in by... Just Mayo. I think that's what I'm thinking of, not yeah. Beyond Mayo. Just Mayo. I'm sorry. No, no. But uh, but Just Mayo, it's on the shelves in Target and Walmart and kind of every place. I think it is actually a little less expensive than Hellman's mayonnaise. And it has replaced eggs altogether. And they're coming out with a whole bunch of additional products. And mostly it's doing that with pea protein. How did you raise money for your fund? And when you raise money for your fund, what is the pitch? Is this really a money-making enterprise or is this a way of doing philanthropy in maybe a different, more innovative direction? It is a huge money-making enterprise. Certainly I mean, super rich now. <laughs> well, the, the reason that, uh, that Obvious Ventures, which is the Twitter guys and Kleiner Perkins and Kosla Ventures and Horizons Ventures, which is, you know, again, Lee Cushing, the richest guy in Asia, and Bill Gates, the, re- the reason that 
you know, hundreds of millions of dollars have flowed into the plant-based space is because they recognize that right now this is a $500 million a year market, and it's about to be a $16 billion a year market. I mean, that's every single year once it has the same proportion of the meat market that plant-based milks have of the milk market. And just last year, a food research firm called Lux Research said that by 2054, plant-based meats will be one-third of the market. So that's, if the market didn't even get any bigger, that's $60 billion a year. So venture capitalists are getting into this, and companies like General Mills and Google Ventures and Kraft Foods and Pinnacle Foods, like really big food conglomerates are getting into this because they see it as a place to make tremendous profit. And actually, just two months ago, the editor of Meeting Place Magazine, that's M-E-A-T, Meeting Place, Place Magazine, it's an industry journal, the title of her editor letter. So the first thing people read was called Hormel's Next Acquisition. And she was talking about how the meat industry needs to follow people like Bill Gates and Biz Stone and Ev Williams and these other smart VC guys and start getting into both acquiring some of these companies that are doing plant-based and cultured meat and putting more R&D resources into this space because so, it's about to explode. But, but specifically to your fund, because how much is your fund raised? $25 million. It's $5 million a year. And you run the fund, yeah? Uh, yeah. And so what is your pitch to investors, right? You are not previously to this an investor. To my knowledge, you're not a guy who actually oriented your life around making particularly huge amounts of money anyway. So you go to people and say, hey, bet on me. I'm someone who cares a lot more about saving the world than making money. What is the, the discussion? What is your sort of advantage in the marketplace? Two-part answer to that question. And part one is it's everything that I just said. It's that everybody eats that you look at what happened with plant-based milks in a fairly short period of time, getting up to 8% of the milk market. You look at what the VC community and the food mega conglomerate corporation community is doing in this space. Like the smart money is betting on plant-based meats to explode in profitability. You have a sector that's at $500 million that in a decade will probably be at $16 billion a year or more. It's hard to imagine a better return on investment than the companies that are vying to be sort of the next big thing in this space. There are a couple of them. They've raised, I think, somewhere on the order of $400 million in venture capital in the last couple of years. But there is tremendous room for more of them. You know, you look at the meat sector and all of the different companies that are competing and basically profitable in the meat sector. We can replicate that in a fairly brief period of time with the plant-based and the cultured sector. And we're also about to see governments taking their Paris Agreement seriously and recognizing that they need to support this sector. Big science foundations that want to deal with sustainability and climate change, realizing that they need to support this sector. But, but so you, you keep making the argument to me about why this sector. I'm, I'm bought in. I, I agree with you that there's going to be growth in, in meats. I am curious about your move to being an investor and venture capitalist. How do you go about that work? How do you convince people that you're going to make good investment decisions as opposed to investment decisions that are philanthropic in nature but not really going to be tough about a return? What is a skill set that either you have brought to it or that you are learning in it? Because that's a fascinating big career move, career transition for you. Like that is very different than running campaigns for PETA. 
It is. There, there are three of us who are principals in the VC fund, and all three of us are definitely mission motivated. And with the $25 million that we have right now, we're in a phenomenally good position such that we have one investor. And it's somebody who is also mission aligned. But we are about to be raising another fund because we have had people, once this fund was announced, emailing multiple times every single day saying, how do I get involved? And the conversations that we're having with people about why to get involved, the three of us who are principals in the fund, we know everybody in this space, literally everybody in this space. We knew Beyond Meat and Hampton Creek and Impossible Foods, the principals of all three of these companies, which are you know, the hottest companies in the space. We knew them, but while these companies were a twinkle in their eye. And if we had this fund five years ago, we would have been first investors in all three of these companies. So we really do have our, our so you thing. screwed up. Well, you must feel terrible. I, I don't. I'm not. <laughs> because I am mission focused, I am absolutely delighted by their success. And I think there is tremendous room for us to continue to tap and create more and more companies in this space. Is the fund exclusively focused on plant-based meats and plant-based food products? Plant-based, cultured, and technologies that are fighting for center of the plate space. So we're investors in the Purple Carrot, which is the... Uh, the new Mark Bittman one, right? Yeah, exactly. Another company called Lighter that is basically taking trend setters and helping them to be more effective and bringing other people toward eating fewer animals and more plants. I mean, it's all about making plant-based eating more convenient, less expensive and tastier. I, I, I'm fascinated by, by Purple Carrot. So, so for folks who haven't heard this, Purple Carrot is a competitor to, what, what's the name of the big one? Blue Apron. Right. But it's vegan. So basically they deliver the ingredients and the instructions for X number of vegan meals a week. Mark Bittman just left the New York Times to go do this. I want to have him on the, hopefully have him on the podcast sometime to talk about it. Do you use it? We do. Uh, how is it? It's really, it's really fantastic. I mean, it's basically like having Mark Bittman standing over your shoulder on that a daily basis, helping it, you figure out. You know, that sounds it, incredibly pressuring. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's the good <laughs> aspects of that. It's the tutoring and the assistance aspect of that without any of the pressure. Sure. But um, yeah, Mark Bittman is really a great guy and he is an absolute maestro at this stuff. So it's, re it's really good. What is the most sort of out of left field company that you're interested in, that you're funding, that you've seen. I think people are comfortable with the idea that, okay, there are a certain number of plant-based meats. Then there is the attempt to grow tissue, right. right? So to have literal meat that just begins in a test tube and ends on your plate. Well, I, it, I assume it, you're looking at some of those. We are one of the first investors in a company called Memphis Meats, which people can find out more about at memphismeats.com. And it's, uh, I mean, cornflakes started in a lab, like every packaged food started in a lab. It's, it's funny to me how we think that's weird for meat. And then people are, are drinking a Diet Coke. Exactly. No, I mean, exactly. And, and what this looks like when it's commercialized is it looks like a beer brewery. So fermenters are bioreactors and it's just taking cells and adding sugars and the cells multiply and it's a completely natural process and it's also completely transparent. So right now, as you know, states are passing laws at the behest of the animal agriculture industries that make it illegal 
to find out what's happening on modern farms and in modern slaughterhouses. This is the diametrical opposite of that. It is your friendly neighborhood meat brewery. You know, there will be big ones like we have Anheuser-Busch, which is big. There will be small ones like you walk into the local brew pub. But either way, there are no qualms about what's happening. The product is clean. There are no antibiotics required, which is, you know, could be a real um, a huge human health problem, an awful lot of scientists are projecting. So it's uh, it's safer, it's cleaner. There are none of the ethical qualms. And as it scales up, the most important thing from our perspective is that it will be cheaper, equally convenient, and taste identical. Is there a company that is approaching this problem from not the problem of lab-grown meat, but but the the broader problem we've been talking about from a perspective that is to you genuinely new that has not been out in the press? I mean, is there something you've seen recently that has gotten you very excited? Yes. You going to tell me about it? Sure. So I mean, we, you're mission driven, right? I know. <laughs> so just yesterday, we got the report from our guy who is our director of mission related investments. He was just over in the Netherlands. He was talking to another company that's about to be commercializing cultured meat. He was talking to a plant-based meat company called the Vegetarian Butcher and another company that does sort of import-export. And something he didn't expect to be doing was finding out about some new machinery that can be used for plant-based meat that at least so far we're very excited about. We have a woman who is an engineer at Boeing and she's doing a bunch of volunteer projects for us having to do with life cycle analyses of cultured meat and a few other projects looking at bioreactor issues having to do with cultured meat. But she looked at this machinery and was really sort of blown away because right now we're at plant-based machinery 1.0. Everybody's using extruders. And I was actually thinking about bringing this up when you said, you know, we're probably far away from a steak. Well, at least the consistency of the stuff coming out of this out of this machine, they're doing sheets of plant-based meat at about a one inch thickness. And it's it looks like the machinery is, is pretty close to being able to create something equivalent to chicken breasts or, you know, one inch steaks and that sort of thing. And as far as we know, there's just this one university in the Netherlands there, you know, nobody else is doing this yet. So one of the things we're doing with the VC fund and the nonprofit organization, I sometimes say we're pre-angel. So you've got the sort of angel investments, which is friends and family. We actually have a dozen ideas for companies that we would like to see founded. And we are actively looking for entrepreneurs and food scientists and some synthetic biology experts to implement the ideas that we have. And we're partnering with SOS Ventures. They have an incubator called IndieBio. And our idea is to send people through IndieBio, and then we'll meet them on the other side with, with more venture capital to keep them going. And one of the things, you know, sort of as of yesterday that we've added to our list of companies that we want to explore is going over there, licensing this technology, bringing it back here, and working with companies like Gardein and Gardenburger and Beyond Meat to up their game in terms of the consistency of the products that they're creating. And uh, this is an answer that would have been very different just 24 hours ago. There you go. So let me ask you a couple sort of more disconnected questions here. Let's say you're someone who's listening to this discussion and you're a very convincing guy and you, you've become convinced that you want to take steps in this direction, but you don't feel ready to go all the way yet. What is your first step when people say, hey, I want to be better, but I'm not sure I'm going to make it staying vegetarian for a long time. The reason I ended up going full vegetarian was I kept trying to do the humane meat thing. And then it was just like the slippery slope back down. But what are for you the first steps that you've seen be successful? 
you know, it, it, we are, I think, as a species, fairly all or nothing. And it's interesting to me how often somebody says, I couldn't give up cheese or I couldn't give up cream in my coffee, my cousin said to me. And their response to not being able to give up cheese or ice cream or cream in their coffee is to just like keep eating everything. <laughs> um, because they can't right. label themselves vegan, so they're just going to eat everything. And it's sort of an aha, surprising the degree to which in, it's an aha moment for people when you say to them, well, then give up everything else and just keep having cream in your coffee. I'll bet at some point you'll be happy to get rid of the cream in your coffee. But even if not, you're doing away with 99 point whatever percent of the harm you're doing, whether you're talking about cruelty or climate change or global poverty or your own health. Half measures are important. You know, right. you, you said, I think, uh, you know, if 2% of people are vegetarian or 10% of people are meatless on Mondays, the meatless on Mondays wins in terms of overall positive effect. So taking steps is, is great and it's important. And the most important step for people from an animal welfare standpoint is to stop eating fish and chickens. Egg production is even more cruel, but it's far fewer animals. So you want to do th three things, fish, chickens, and eggs, but fish and chickens are, you know, take, take away a lot of your support for suffering. Just related thing to the pattern you just laid out there. I had tried to go, you and I had spoken about this before. I had you know, been vegetarian for like three months, a bunch of times and would always sort of fell back out. And what I had done this time, the time that it stuck, and it's been about a year now, is that initially I didn't go vegetarian. I was mostly vegetarian, but I could eat meat when I traveled. I think there might've been one other exemption like that. And then just slowly that became less appealing and it just stopped. Right. But it was creating something where I didn't fail a bunch of times at the beginning was much easier for me because in the past I, I would fail and I'd be like, well, I, fuck, I, I fucked up. Might as well eat 12 burgers. Right. And, and here, because I had a bunch of outlets that happened, it wasn't the it wasn't the end of the world. And, and one thing that's been really helpful for me is if I like have a bite of something is not get into the habit of, OK, well, I was vegetarian. Now I'm not. Right, right, yeah. You, you, the labels are, are yeah, the labels can really screw with your head, actually. And uh, it's weird to me that I didn't realize that about myself much earlier. I think that's everybody. But uh, yeah, I'm an, I'm a big fan of Vegan Before Six, Mark Bittman's you mm -hmm. know book and concept. I'm a big fan of Meatless Mondays. I like Vegan Before Six better because it you know removes more of one's support for the problems that come with animal agriculture. But I'm also a big fan of I'm just not going to eat chickens, or I'm just not going to eat mm -hmm. fish, or I'm not going to eat fish and chickens and eggs. I think all of it does tremendous good and. To the degree that it is more sustainable, certainly does more good than going vegan for a month. So there are a lot of people in the audience from this next question won't be interesting, but you live in D.C. I live in D.C. Where, where do you go out to eat? We are big fans of busboys and poets. Okay. We're also big fans of Evolve, which is a, a vegan restaurant that's the closest restaurant to the Tacoma Park metro station. Both Woodlands, the vegetarian Indian uh -huh. restaurant, you know, up New Hampshire Avenue and the one that's at Georgia and Columbia those are a few of a few of our favorites. And what three books would you recommend to the audience? That is such a tough question, Ezra. I mean, you know, you, in terms of uh, how you sort of categorize the books, but I guess uh, on animal protection, I'm a huge fan of Jonathan Safran Foer's book, Eating Animals. I also continue to think that that Animal Liberation by Peter Singer is sort of the Bible of the animal rights movement, but probably Eating Animals is a little bit more accessible. 
I was really pleased to hear Bill Gates pick The Better Angels of Our Nature and Sapiens, because both of those books do tremendous good reflection on the animal protection question. I love getting things done. I think if I had not read, you know, getting things done, I'd be in a world of hurt. I, d- I tried that for a while and it did not, it did not work for me. Oh. Because it, there I kept feeling like I failed. So one of the things of getting things done is you reply to all emails. It'll take less than two minutes immediately. And I have never been able to stick to that. And I'm terrible on email. You have to to group it with not checking your email constantly or you will get nothing done all day. So you have to group that with just checking your email like first thing in the morning and then at like two in the afternoon and then in the evening. And then I think it gets a lot easier. I have tried that batching thing a bunch of times. And for the period of time I'm able to stick with it, you're right. It is so much more effective. And what's fascinating is how it makes you realize that most of the time when you flick over to your email, just absentmindedly, you are not doing it in a mindset where you're going to return anything. So you're checking your email more and becoming less responsive because you're using it to distract yourself from something else, not actually to accomplish the goal of keeping up on your email. So whenever I do the batching, I become all of a sudden much better on email. And I think everybody who works with me is surprised for a week. And then I, I tend to fall back into old habits. Yeah. My problem with email is that I'm looking to see if there's anything urgent and I don't want to take the two minutes to answer. I just want to make sure there's not right. you know, some fire that I need to put out. And that's just so incredibly inefficient. I also love the book Influence for the degree to which it sort of challenges the cognitive dissonance that is essential to all of our lives. Uh, Influence, that one I don't know. Uh, it's, by Robert, it's by Robert Cialdini, who's a professor of psychology, I think, at Arizona State University. And it's just a whole bunch of really interesting studies about things like if the light turns green and you're behind a VW bug or you're behind a Lexus, 100% of people will say that, you know, Maybe they honk at the Lexus first or, you know, it's equal. And yet in test results, like 90% of people give the Lexus a pass and honk at the VW bug. If somebody says, hey, will you loan me a quarter and they look like you, you're like nine times more likely to loan them a quarter, even though all of us will say that it's Mm -hmm. absolutely not different. And even the people in the VW bug are more likely to honk at the VW bug than the person in the Lexus. And just lots of sort of interesting. There's uh, This isn't in Influence, but it's in the same category. It's the sort of thing that the book Influence is filled with. There was a study about a year ago where they determined that people think that clothes made without child labor the exact same clothes. I think the NPR thing was, uh, the title was like, do these jeans make me look unethical? I think was their coverage of this, this study. But first, like 80% of people, when they were told you can find out four things about these jeans, and one of them was, were the jeans made with child labor? Like 80% of people didn't pick child labor. They were more interested in the cut and the color and other things. But then once you told people that jeans were child labor free, they suddenly rated them less appealing, less expensive, you know, less huh. sexy. That's the opposite of what I would have expected. But the book for people who are interested in advocacy and influence really helps to, I think, you know, sort of better understand human cognition and what will and will not be effective in, in influencing people in a lot of ways that I found surprising and challenging and infuriating. Bruce Friedrich, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. It was really a pleasure. Thanks so much to to Bruce Friedrich. I thought that conversation was really, really powerful and gave me a lot to think about. I hope it did the same for you. Uh, Thank you to Vox.com and Panoply, to my producer, AC Valdez, and I'll see you next week.